Okay, thank you all for coming. I'm Emma Norris and I'm the Director of Research at the Institute for Government. So we've now got a Conservative majority government in place, so the question we'll be discussing this morning is what next now for Brexit? For Brexit? In terms of what next, the big issues we're expecting to look at are what needs to happen before the 31st of January to ensure that the UK leaves the EU on time, what the scale of the task is for the EU, uh, from the EU and for the UK government in what comes next in negotiating the future relationship, and how we expect the EU to approach those negotiations. So we've got a panel who's going to be looking at all that and I'm sure more. Um, we've got Joe Owen, who's the director of our Brexit programme at the Institute, Marita Montjac, who leads our work on Parliament and Brexit, amongst other things. Georgina Wright, who leads our work on Europe and who was previously at Chatham House. And we will have, um, in the empty chair, Raoul Ruparel, um, who, as I'm sure you all know, was Theresa May's special advisor on Europe and who's just yesterday published a paper for the Institute looking at getting the UK ready for the next phase of negotiations. Um, just got a few little bits of housekeeping that I've been told to go through with you. So this event is on the record and it's being live streamed. Um, if you're using Twitter, if you want to tweet about it, please use the hashtag IFGBrexit. Um, we're not expecting any fire alarms this morning, so if you hear one go off, then please leave uh, the room in an orderly fashion uh, down the stairs and out the building. Okay, so we're going to start with conversation amongst the panel. It'll probably take about half an hour, and then I'll make sure there's about half an hour for you all to ask questions as well. Maddie, I'm going to turn to you first, um, as I think we want to start on the withdrawal agreement bill. So I guess my first question is, what needs to happen next to get the WAB through by the 31st of January? And yeah. what are some of the possible flashpoints? So, so what we, we know now that the government does want to bring it before the House of Commons before the end of this week. So the expectation is it will be um, there will be a second reading vote on Friday, so alongside the first reading, provided the Speaker allows that to happen. Um, and then it will basically be a very rushed timetable still to get it through by the 31st of January. When the Commons come back, they're going to have to consider all stages of the bill very quickly, um, and then it will have to go to the House of Lords. Now, the government does control the timetable in the Commons in a way it doesn't in the Lords. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's sort of been a bit of a question about whether the peers will sort of drag their feet, because actually this sort of constitutionally significant bill should... Uh, have proper scrutiny. Um, but I think, you know, if the Commons are willing to get this bill through, there's obviously a political imperative and pressure to for the UK to leave the EU by the 31st of January. So mm -hmm. I, I think we will expect to see it get through and receive royal assent before the 31st, which will allow the UK government to ratify the withdrawal agreement. I mean, in terms of possible flashpoints, I mean, today there's already been briefed out that there is some changes to the withdrawal agreement bill um, from the version that we saw in October. So, for example, the government have, have removed the provisions around workers' rights. They've also said that they're going to sort of make it illegal for them to, to seek a, an extension tra to transition period. So I presume that means just putting the face of the end of transition on the bill. I mean, in terms of removing the workers' rights provisions, I think it's worth saying that actually the provisions in the last WAB weren't particularly strong anyway. Uh, basically, there was a requirement for the government to make a statement saying whether legislation was going to roll back any workers' rights. Um, and then either, if it, if it was going to, to do that, then basically they could still make the choice to press ahead with legislation mm -hmm. anyway. Um, and I think they're also saying they're going to include something on workers' rights in the Queen's speech as well to try and uh, sort of address that, that issue. Um, the other, the other sort of point about including a, a sort of exit date for the transition period um, on the face of the bill, I mean, legislation can still um, override that. So, so it doesn't necessarily bind their hands. And, and the E-Withdrawal Act actually also did have the 29th of March 2019 as the exit date for Article 50 on the face of the bill, and that obviously didn't end up happening. Um, the, the other question that I think I'm interested to look out for is whether or not they remove the parliamentary oversight provisions mm -hmm. in the Withdrawal Agreement Bill. So um, the previous version had a vote, um, for example, on the negotiating objectives in Parliament, um, but also a vote to approve uh, a future relationship treaty before the government could ratify it. And so they might decide to remove those, although it's worth saying that with such a big majority, it's unlikely those votes would end up causing quite the same problems uh, for this government as it did for Theresa May's government. Thanks. And I just wanted to pick up on this. You know, we were hearing last night about this you know, uh, decision to make it illegal to extend the transition period. You've already talked about that. I mean, does that change anything? Um, does it mean anything, or is it, is it just for show? I think it's mainly political, really. It's, it's saying that they, they really do mean, uh, mean, it, mean it when they say that they don't want to extend transition period. But as I say, you, you could override the, that provision. I mean, if we look at the E-Withdrawal Act as an example, when, so when that bill was going through the Commons, um, actually backbench MPs wanted to include the date of exit on the face mm -hmm. of the bill, um, and the government agreed to do that. And then when, when the bill went to the Lords, the Lords actually 
added a provision to allow ministers to amend that date yeah. through secondary legislation. Um, you might see something similar happening. Obviously, this is different. We have got a government with a big majority, so it's it, it sort of they might if they really really want to keep that exit date on the face of the bill. Then you know, if the Lord say did include some kind of amendment on that, they could potentially like refuse to include it. Um, and also, there is a sort of question as well as as to if you did get to the point where you did make a decision to want to extend the transition period. If you have got a big majority and the majority of those people don't want to extend transition, it could become more difficult. So, you know, it, I think we're, we need to wait and see a little bit how the numbers stack up in, in Parliament. I think, you know, we've got a lot of new MPs um, and so we need to sort of work out quite uh, where they fall um, in terms of a sort of hard, soft Brexit yeah. uh, sort of continuum. And what else? Are we expecting any other big changes to the WAC? We're already having you know, a few of them fed out. Are we expecting more over the next couple of days? I think mainly the one, as I say, I'd be looking out for is parliamentary oversight. Yeah. Um, I mean, the WAC basically gives ministers extensive delegated powers to implement the withdrawal agreement. I mean, that, that's the main thing that it does. And so I don't see that changing particularly. Uh, I think another question that will, I think, particularly come up in the House of Lords will be about uh, the sort of scrutiny of those delegated powers so um, I mean th you know there's there's a reason why uh, they have included those I mean for example around the Northern Ireland protocol we still don't know how aspects of that will work there have been decisions that have been left up for the joint committee so they, they do need to be able to use secondary legislation to implement it but I think the question will be what how should Parliament scrutinize um, those statutory instruments to make sure they actually understand quite what the government is doing and how the government is changing our laws. Yeah, and I, I wanted to pick up on this point on scrutiny because obviously, you know, we're now in majority government territory. Do you think the role of Parliament has completely receded now um, or are there other possible things that Parliament could be doing to both scrutinise and, and so on? Well, I, I think it's, it's worth saying that I think it's still very, very important that Parliament takes its scrutinising role seriously. Mm -hmm. So even if even though there is a majority government, it is important that MPs in particular, but also peers, I mean, I expect they will be doing that anyway, look at the contents of the bill and what the implications of using those delegated powers will be. Um, the, the challenge really, particularly in the first month of next year, is that actually getting select committees up and running in the Commons mm -hmm. takes time. Yep. So although you have to elect uh, committee chairs within a month of the general election, you actually, there isn't any fixed time for electing members to select committees so actually I think the question will be how long does it take for those select committees to get up and running so that they can hold the government to account while it's negotiating with the EU. Brilliant thank you okay Maddie I'm going to stop grilling you for a second and Raoul sorry to dive on you as soon as you've um, got into the chair but I wanted to come to you now and um, you know we're obviously looking forward to, to the next stage of negotiations at this point what do you think the most important lesson that the government can take from the first phase of negotiations is? Well, personally, apologies for being a bit late, but um, look, there are plenty of lessons to be learnt. For me, the most important one is having a clear sense of the structure of negotiations, the process of negotiations, and having sort of early decision making. Um, I think, you know, my experience in the last phase was that we spent a lot of time trying to take difficult decisions on the fly, uh, and obviously cobble together supportive coalitions for it, both inside Parliament and government, but also in the wider public. So I think going into the next phase, um, there is a little bit of time ahead of the start of negotiations. The government really needs to have in its mind a clear picture of how it wants those negotiations to run, what is running in parallel, what should be negotiated when, you know, which issues it tries to tackle up front, which it leaves till later, and how, how that suits its own interests. And obviously the EU will be doing this process, and it did it well in the first phase, and so I think the UK needs to do a bit of a better, better job this time. And on the EU, Georgie, what do you th is there anything you think the EU will take from the first phase of negotiations that it'll be trying to use in the second? I don't, do you know what, that's a really tricky question because actually, if you think of the EU, they are a formidable trade negotiator. I mean, that's what they do really well because actually um, they know that their unity is their strength. So there's a lot of internal bargaining. So actually when they are negotiating with a third country, they'll say, look, actually can't really budge that much because, you know, this reflects hours and hours of internal discussions in Brussels. If we move on this, we might, it might collapse altogether. Um, so I, I suspect that actually they're going to try as much as possible and main um, that united 
limited loan. We can come back to that later. Um, but I think for the UK, um, Raoul, you're absolutely right. I think there was sort of the UK was a bit slow to realise that this was actually a very different negotiation. I mean, as a big member state, you can essentially call the shots in the EU. You know, you can say loudly and clearly what you what you think in councils of that grouping of EU governments, and you build coalitions with member states you think are susceptible to share your view. All of a sudden, we find ourselves in a situation where member states are on the other side of the table, and actually we're negotiating with the Commission is acting on behalf of member states. So yes, we should be engaging member states, and of course we should be explaining, you know, government should be explaining its positions, but it should realise also that the Commission is having all those discussions. There's lots of feedback before and after every negotiating round. And so actually those discussions with member states shouldn't come at the expense of discussions with the Commission. No, that makes sense. And in the second phase, you know, what do you think our diplomatic strategy should look like, though? I mean, are we expecting member states to be as unified in phase two? Well, I mean, you've already heard sort of reports that actually some member states are, are sort of, they have different interests actually when it comes to the UK. So obviously a lot depends on, on sort of what the UK and the EU think they can achieve within 11 months. I mean, no one in Brussels thinks that a comprehensive trade agreement on UK and EU terms can be achieved and passed within 11 months. So the Prime Minister really has a choice there. Um, and we can come back to that in a minute. Um, but certainly, if, if you know the UK and the EU opt for sort of a more basic deal, because actually the Prime Minister does not want to extend that deadline, um, then the key question becomes, okay, well, what does that basic deal cover? Um, and different member states will have different interests and we'll want to make sure that their interests are at the top. But as I said, going back and looking at the way that the EU negotiates in general, unity is their strength. So as much as possible, they're going to try and maintain that line. Thanks. Raoul, just coming back to you, so again, looking to the second phase, what do you think the key issues for the UK are going to be during the negotiations? And I guess in particular, where are some of the trade-offs likely to be? Well, I think sort of building on Georgie's point, I mean, th th there's two big interrelated trade-offs sort of strategically, I think. The first is speed versus depth and breadth of, of the agreement, but also um, how good the agreement is for the UK. I think, you know, uh, as I set out in the paper for, for the Institute of Government yesterday, you know, there is very little chance of getting a mixed agreement through in the time available. So you are looking at a more narrow and shallow FTA using just the EU's exclusive competence. So that limits the breadth and depth of the deal to start with. But I think then as well, if you're looking at um, the negotiations, the EU will be coming in with, you know, key arts or level playing field, fisheries, geographical indicators, for example, uh, and the time the UK spends trying to negotiate them down from those positions um, will, will eat up a lot of time, and so there will be a trade-off that maybe at some point the UK is going to have to accept positions it doesn't necessarily entirely agree with to try and get something done quickly. And I think the link to that, though, is that at some point next year there will probably come a, a wider decision point for the UK to say, well, does the economic benefits that this narrow and shallower FTA deliver actually fit with the responsibilities we're taking on in terms of level <coughs> playing fields, access to our waters, uh, and other things? And, and that kind of key trade-off, I think, will be a really big strategic question for the UK to, to engage with, and I think it's something that the government needs to start thinking about early on. And just in terms of structures as well, how are you expecting the kind of second phase to be run for the UK? Are you thinking this is all going to be run out of number 10? We're hearing lots about machinery of government changes at the moment. What do you think it's going to look like in UK government? Well, I think there's going to have to be some big changes because I don't think the government is yet there in terms of being ready to do such a complex negotiation, but also get it implemented on the ground. So I think, you know, there are various options. One is to have a narrow sort of centre out of number 10 with departments doing a lot of legwork. Another is to have a broader uh, negotiating unit in the Cabinet Office that does a lot of the work, working with departments, or to have a separate department, you know, DIT, for example, doing both EU and international trade negotiations. My sense is the preference at the moment looks to be something like the second option, so uh, quite a big centre in the Cabinet Office, you know, pulling some policy, legal expertise into the Cabinet Office to create a new negotiating unit. Um, that can then work with departments to run this negotiation and get it implemented on the ground. I think tied in with that, you also need a new decision-making structure to sit above this to try and make sure that you can take these strategic decisions early and quickly. Uh, I think in the first phase, the, the decision-making structure, partly because of the politics, but also just, I think, structural problems um, was not as efficient as it could have been. So I think you know, those sort of changes will need to happen. Uh, they need to happen quite quickly because, obviously, if you're creating a new 
unit, department, whatever it might be, to do this negotiation. They need to be the ones preparing the negotiation, and you know, we need to be preparing right now. Joe, did you want to come in on yeah, this? Yeah, I, I guess wanted to make the point that um, there is a risk that Boris Johnson, having been successful in the last negotiation in October, thinks I can run a similar kind of model to that, but actually these negotiations will be extremely diff different and much more difficult. So, for example, Raoul mentioned the kind of political decision-making structures under Theresa May. Actually, political decision-making wasn't really an issue under Boris Johnson. But if you look at how those decisions were taken, so they had uh, the Cabinet Committee excess, um, exit strategy, which I think was the Prime Minister plus five um, other Cabinet Ministers, but those Cabinet Ministers did not include uh, the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, didn't include the Business Secretary. So actually, when some of those big decisions were taken about, for example, the Northern Ireland Protocol, not only the voices of those departments weren't in that meeting having those discussions, but that also limits the way that the experts in those departments, the policy leads, can actually feed up into those conversations. And so you can't afford to take the kind of approach that was taken in October, where you had David Frost with a very small number of officials around him, maybe reaching into the Department for Exiting the European Union quite a lot, but much less around Whitehall. That's not sustainable if you want to try and cover the breadth of the future relationship. I mean, there's obviously a question about depth, um, but you can't just see it as something that, because it's politically sensitive, you want to keep extremely close to the Prime Minister because a lot of the expertise uh, and a lot of the implementation knowledge, as Raoul mentioned, will sit all around the rest of Whitehall. Okay. Can I very quickly come in. I think also it's really important to realise that the UK has changed, but the EU has changed also. We've got new leaders at the head of EU institutions, the European Parliament is incredibly fractured, and they have made very clear, MEPs, that they're not going to want one week to look at this agreement. They're going to want more time to debate it in committees, in plenaries, and it's a much more fractured institution. So it's, it's very difficult to predict how they will react. And so Michel Barnier, who's the chief Brexit negotiator, is building those relationships, is meeting with them regularly. But it's a new cohort of people who will be looking at this agreement. And then, of course, depending on the kind of trade agreement that it is, if it covers areas of EU and member state law, then you'd expect national parliaments and possibly even regional parliaments wanting time to look at that agreement as well. So it's not only time for negotiations, it's very much time for scrutiny as well. Yeah, thanks, Georgie. One question I wanted to ask the entire panel is what should government be doing to prepare for the looming potential of no deal in, uh, in December 2020? Joe, I might just yeah. come to you first. Well, so I think they have to carry on, government will have to carry on with the kind of twin track approach of preparing for the possibility of a deal, but also preparing for no deal. Now, obviously, no deal in December 2020 is no deal, is different to no deal in um, October or if it was at the end of March um, this year. Um, if anyone's got a good name for how you kind of separate the two of them, uh, all ears. Um, but there is going to be a huge implementation job. I mean, one of the things um, so far with Brexit, it's just seemed like this kind of political task of negotiation and legislation, but nothing practically has changed. I mean, I'm sure some uh, businesses and business groups who've been marched up the hill on no deal a couple of times will kind of beg to differ slightly, but in practical terms, we've never reached that point where things have changed, and that will happen at the end of the transition period. The practical implications of Brexit will come through. You will need the new systems, the new processes in place, <coughs> And I think the latest estimate is they'll be just short of 30,000 officials working on Brexit by the end of March, which gives you a kind of idea of the just scale of this. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the, some of the implications for just how difficult delivering in that time frames are, so take immigration. We want a new immigration system to be in place for January 2021. That means businesses need to be able to make job offers based on that immigration system, so there's no kind of air gap in January while they get set up on a new system. So you need them being able to dish out job offers based on visas in October, September time next year. Well, we know the home office system, it takes between two and three months to become a sponsored licensed 
business. You know, you have to go through all of these processes so that you're up as a sponsor on the Home Office systems. So that means even an ambitious time frame takes you back to June next year. So that means you need the system kind of done by June next year, but we're still having discussions about what the policy is. The last time we changed the immigration system, from the point at which the white paper was published, it was kind of three years before the full rollout happened. So these timelines are extremely tight, and at the moment we haven't had to kind of confront the big change um, because it's never happened and we're moving into transition. But that will, you know, that doesn't last forever. Um, and government will need to be clear about when and how it starts communicating with businesses. Uh, will it start saying, actually, you need to prepare for no deal still? Will that be a clear running theme through next year? Or will it be much quieter? We know that business readiness was one of the areas that the government really struggled in preparation for no deal. I mean, one of the points I would make is that both for government and business, preparing for deal and preparing for no deal look much more similar now than they did under Theresa May's proposal. Um, it might mean that you don't have to pay tariffs, for example, if you're trading with the EU, but you'll still need to prepare to do all of the paperwork that you would need um, for no deal. You will also need in a deal. So actually, it's kind of more straightforward in you're not running two different versions of the future, both in government and business, but less straightforward in that that version of the future is very, very different to where we are now, and it's an absolutely huge job. Well. Yeah, I think I think picking up on that point Joe made is really important about deal and no deal being closer because I think in the in the last phase and in the last government, you know, trying to prepare for both no deal and deal at the same time put a huge constraint on the government and on the capacity, and it ended up that we had to pause the deal preparation sort of early in 2018 essentially. And so if you try and do both again, I think you're really going to constrain the capacity of of the government and the civil service, not to mention at a time where you're talking about doing all these other radical policies and, and changing the way the civil service works. So I think they really have to look at where the overlaps there are between deal and no deal and whether they can rationalise this preparation. And I think you know, there are some areas, particularly customs and borders, where actually all the infrastructure and the administrative processes that you're going to need for no deal are probably going to be needed in a form in a deal as well. So actually getting ready is not going to look that different. And yes, you can slot in whether there are tariffs or not, as, as Joe said. So I think that, that there is some scope for rationalisation there. I also think you know, it comes to the sort of agreement we're aiming for and the ambition. You know, if you go in certain areas for a relatively what some might term unambitious approach, so take aviation if you go for um, you know, quite a standard air services agreement that covers fourth and fifth freedoms of the air, rather than going into um, the seventh and ninth freedom, sorry for the technical terms, but the, rather than going more ambitious to what the, the European Common Aviation Area does, um, you know, I think you, you are then, you can be quite sure that actually that's probably a negotiable agreement, and so maybe you can reduce the level of no deal planning and focus more on the deal outcome there. So there is a bit of a question about, you know, um, which aims you pick and choose in, in terms of preparation. So there really needs to be some, some thought given to that. And I think, though, we also have to, to remember the business side of this. You know, businesses, the lead-in times for business on a lot of this stuff is, is easily six months to a year, particularly if they're building new infrastructure and changing supply chains. So, you know, a lot of businesses are going to be looking in January next year saying, OK, well, we need to start making our changes and our plans now. But they have no real clarity on what the agreement looks like. And, you know, if I were them, I'd probably say, well, then we're just going to prepare for the worst case. And whatever comes out on top of that is, is a bonus. But, um, you know, I think in doing that, they will then reduce the value of the eventual deal. So um, the government has to consider whether, whether there's a way to deal with that issue. And obviously, you know, you can look at the potential for phased implementation uh, and, you know, while the government is ruling out an extension of the transition, you know, is there, is there a way you can maybe get some initial agreements in place or some holding agreements to allow for um, more time? You know, it, it varies sector to sector. You know, you could, for example, see if you, got, if you went for equivalence and decided to keep your regulations the same on financial services in those areas that it's relevant, you know, that actually keeps everything very similar for certain parts of the financial services sector. It doesn't cover the breadth that people would like but that at least can be then a staging post where in the longer term, you know, the government can then consider what sort of agreement it, it wants. But, you know, that obviously doesn't work for every sector. So there needs to be consideration about how it works in different areas. I think very quickly, um, also from the EU's perspective, a lot of these kind of deals or, or if we do venture into a no deal territory, the EU would presumably have to issue unilateral 
time-limited measures to cover those sectors that, that, that you know are vital and you can't really afford disruption but the incentives will be different I think um, you know if you were unable to pass a withdrawal agreement um, there, it was always the assumption that at some point the UK and the EU would come back to the negotiating table and negotiate a future deal here you, there would also be that assumption, but it's a very different, as I said, EU. There's a lot going on next year. They're talking about the future of the EU. Um, there's that budget, seven-year budget, that's coming into force on the 1st of January 2021. And there's just going to be a lot going on. So how much time, really, and capacity do member states themselves, capitals, have to focus on you know, negotiating a deal versus negotiating no deal, and then the politics of that um, just becomes very complicated. Thanks. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, you know, that the sort of the, the reason for, for leaving the EU is about sort of setting up these new domestic policy regimes and areas that, that the, the UK government wants. So, for example, the common agriculture policy, common fisheries policy, both very unpopular. Um, and actually, to do to, to be to be able to set up new domestic regimes, they are going to have to pass some more legislation. So there is going to have to be action in Parliament. And although, um, as we said, the numbers maybe mean that that won't be as much of a challenge as it was for Theresa May's government. I mean, the immigration, agriculture, and fisheries bills all just sort of stopped making progress in May this year, basically. But at the same time, the time pressure will be quite high. So I think in September, the Permanent Secretary at DEFRA um, told the EFRA Select Committee that actually if they want to be able to pass the Agriculture Bill and pass the necessary statutory instruments to allow a transition away from the Common Agriculture Policy in 2021, they need that bill in place by summer next year. And I think initially it was actually in the sort of spring, but there's clearly been a bit of wiggle room um, allowed. But actually, we're going to have to see those domestic uh, policy like uh, bills coming back very quickly so that they can actually get them in place. For, uh, for new domestic uh, regimes after Brexit. So we've heard a lot about how much needs to be done in order to hit the December deadline. Just quickly before we go to the audience, do we think that we're going to hit the December deadline or not? Joe? I'm obviously going to fudge this. So, um, <laughs> uh, so I think it is possible to do a deal um, and it is possible to ratify a deal. The just question is, what is the deal? Mm. Um, if time is your constraint, then you can bend on ambition and you can just start saying yes quite a lot to EU demands and that will mean that you can get a deal but both of those things also increase the likelihood of a breakdown and, and no deal if the pressure is such that you're having to make concessions and the quality of the deal at the end doesn't look that great in comparison to the big ambitious free trade agreement that you kind of pitched at the beginning. The thing that is much harder to fudge is implementation. Um, we know that these, you know, as Raul said, businesses want 12 months largely knowing what their kind of operating environment is going to be. Um, and so, again, you can cut that short. You could have a deal pop out in November and say, by the way, on New Year's Eve, this is going to be the new operating environment and you've just got to deal with it. That just means there'll be more disruption. So you kind of have this sliding scale where the more time you give businesses and government to adapt, the less disruption you'll get, but it's kind of pointless hoping to get enough time so that there'll never be any if there's quite a big change, because the reality is there's kind of diminishing benefits to extra time. The question, I think there's probably three questions for government, is that one is how much time do they think they actually need once they've got the deal in order to allow businesses to adapt? Two is kind of what is the mechanism through which they're going to get that extra time? You don't necessarily need to do it through transition extension we've already talked about, are there areas where unilateral decisions on either side or both sides can preserve the status quo for a period of time, six months or whatever it is. Um, and then the third question is, what do you do to support all of those businesses that are going to struggle? We knew an, under no deal the government had its plans for um, Operation Kingfisher, which was how do you support the economy and the parts of the economy that face the most disruption as a result of no deal, if you're going for a kind of looser arrangement, that disruption will still exist and government will need to think about what are the kind of policy remedies that it's willing to offer for those businesses who aren't ready for whatever reason, maybe they've not paid attention, maybe they've heard the government cry wolf so many times that they've decided maybe nothing will ever change, but government <coughs> will need to think about how it offers support in that area. Maddie. 
I mean, I think in terms of the sort of practical questions, I think Joe sketched them out very nicely. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it will end up coming down to the politics of next year um, and how much pressure uh, Boris Johnson does feel like he ha is under to actually reach a deal. And as Joe has said, there are going to be trade-offs and, and decisions involved in that. I mean, it is worth saying that even in terms of getting a deal agreed with the EU, it is likely they'll need to pass primary legislation to allow them to implement it. That does require time. I mean, again, you can rush it through. If you've got the numbers in Parliament, that might work for you. Um, but I think it will, it will probably end up coming down to how much pressure he feels, particularly from his own, uh, his own party, um, to actually do it in that time frame, or whether actually once the 31st of January date has passed, whether that gives a bit more wiggle room and actually the sort of potentially more time doesn't seem as politically challenging at that point, but that's quite difficult to predict at this stage. I think what you're hearing in Brussels is they're sort of, they see four options, but two options are the most likely. Mm -hmm. One is, as, as Joe said, sort of a softer uh, form of Brexit. Um, so that would basically meet, meaning meeting the deadline um, and having a comprehensive deal, but that would mean swallowing up a lot of EU demands, or going through a bare-bone, very basic FTA. Um, the question then becomes, what do you include in that FTA? So from the EU's perspective is, when can we start negotiating? We need to start negotiating now, because actually, when you talk to people in Brussels, they say the outcome, i.e. whether we go for a basic deal or a soft or no deal, will only really become apparent later on next year. They know and sort of they're expecting a lack of clarity at the beginning. So they're really urging um, to start those negotiations straight away. And you know, it's worth remembering they've had the whole of the general election to prepare their mandate, to grow their team massively, to kind of you know reshape their structure and they feel very ready even if you know behind closed doors I'm sure there are some uh, elements of disagreement. Well I agree with basically everything everyone else has said and, and you know I think Sort of where Joe was coming from, you know, that there, there could and will likely be some agreement by the end of next year, but whether it will all be in force, I'm less sure. Um, the point I focus on, though, is we've talked a lot about the FTA, but there are a huge number of areas beyond that, um, you know, and I think those are going to be much more tricky. I think, particularly, you're looking at areas like internal security, uh, covering justice and home affairs and cooperation in those areas. You know, that will require ratification by all member states, and it is going to be something that is quite an unprecedented negotiation for the EU even to engage on, given the depth and breadth of our current relationship. Um, and so it's, it's less a standard framework that they're, they're used to negotiating. So it's something that is novel for both sides, which you know, tends to take more time. And I think you know, there are other you know, external uh, security and foreign policy cooperation will, will be a little bit easier, given the intergovernmental nature. But um, you know, things like science and innovation, energy, um, climate change, these kinds of things, which you know, may fall outside of, of the scope of a, a basic FTA, um, you know, I think will, will be more challenging. And so there has to be thought given as to how those are handled and, and what happens, you know, if you do get some agreement in place, but not everything in place by the end of 2020. Thank you. Okay. So we've got 25 minutes left. I'm going to turn to the audience now. I'll take questions in threes. If you could say your question and where you're from, and can I just remind people to ask questions rather than give statements? Good morning. I'm Therese Raphael from Bloomberg. I wonder if you could um, address uh, more of the question of sequencing. It was such a big issue in the first round of negotiations. How do you see the EU positioning the sequencing and how do you see the UK responding and where do you see the big, um, you know, the big sticking points there? Thank you. Thank you. Chris Langdon from Thinking the Unthinkable. It's already complicated. Can I add a couple of other complications? <laughs> A lot of the work in Brussels next year will be focusing on the European Green Deal. In December, the, the COP26 is in, in the UK, in Glasgow, with the UK, with the Italians leading. How is that process of interaction on climate change outside the confines of the FTA going to happen? It's really complicated. Um, and I heard you around last night on Newsnight with a colleague from, who helped write the manifesto to talk, saying it's absolutely certain there's going to be a radical government. How do all those other radical changes in Whitehall and across the country fit into this already mind-bogglingly complicated situation? Thank you. Uh, Vicky Price from CUBR. Uh, is there a possibility of having just a sort of heads of agreement by then? Because I think Raul, you, you suggested that some things would be decided in greater detail later. Financial services, for example. So could you just say that we intend to 
but by December 2020, just have a, a skeleton outline, still leave and then negotiate after? Is that still possible with the EU and its negotiating position in the past at all? Um, that is, I think, what perhaps some of the financial sector people are hoping for. Great, thank you. Okay, so we've got sequencing, um, the EU and the UK response, um, climate change and radical changes in Whitehall, how do they interact with this? And then is it possible to kind of do a skeleton and then negotiate after? Who wants to start? I'll, I'll kick off and sort of deal more in detail with the first and the last questions, I think. On, on the sequencing, I think quite a lot depends on the structure of the agreement, you know, what you're actually looking to negotiate. Is it going to be one single big agreement, overarching association agreement, um, at which point you're doing, you know, um, a more, I guess, a more comprehensive negotiation? Uh, or are you trying to do a series of little agreements um, and run all of that in parallel? Um, and I think if you're doing a bigger negotiation, you know, there will then be a strategic choice about whether you try and deal with the big issues and difficult issues up front, um, or if you try and kick them later down the line and build up a sort of head of steam of agreeing on certain things, um, you know, in the interim. Uh, I don't think it's clear cut which way it will go yet. My sense, and George, you may have a better idea of this, is that the EU at the moment is leaning towards a single overarching agreement. I don't think the UK is taking a decision on what it wants. Um, you know, there are pluses and minuses of both. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it, it, it will have an impact on how negotiations are run and where the leverage points are. Um, you know, for example, if you're doing a big overarching agreement, then the EU has a case to say, well, the level playing field applies to this whole agreement, not just the market access. Whereas if you're doing smaller, sort of more sectoral type agreements, still though with an, uh, you know, an overarching governance structure to avoid the, the Swiss problem. But um, if you're doing those separate agreements, you can maybe try and say, well, the detail of this agreement is on the merit of, of this particular sector. Whether that will hold, I don't know, but that's the kind of choices we have to see. So I, I think it's, it's less clear, and I think, unlike the first phase, the EU is a bit less clear about how it wants sequencing to run. You know, it was very, very clear from early on, you know, we need to sequence this um, in phase one. Phase two is more open. Uh, I think that's, that's the case. Uh, on the heads of agreement that, that Vicky asked about, I mean... <laughs> It might be possible to do it in certain areas. I guess the question is, you know, what happens in the interim while you're turning that heads of agreement into a more detailed um, FTA? I think financial services is one sector where you could imagine something because of the equivalent structure that keeps things the same. So you could have, you know, this is our ambition in the longer term and then in the interim we're going to grant equivalents and keep things the same in these areas. On other sectors, though, it's more tricky because they don't have those equivalent systems in place. And so you'd have to be looking either at something where you continue parts of the transition period, and I think that gets quite legally complicated to, to continue parts of it and not other parts. You, you could then have a separate agreement that holds everything the same for a status quo, but the EU so far has been nervous about the legal competence of that outside of Article 50. So, you know, saying to a third country in a trade negotiation, okay, we'll give you a legal text of an agreement that just says everything stays the same until we're happy with it, is not a precedent they're keen to set. So the alternative is something that's been mentioned already, which is a unilateral agreement where both sides agree, okay, we'll just leave everything the same in the interim. Um, question then whether you get into WTO problems with that. Um, so all of those things are tricky. So it's not impossible. Um, I don't think it's something that I would think would be adopted widely across the piece. I think there may be a couple of sectors where it could be applied. So financial services and then data adequacy is another one. So, you know, I think it might be something that could be used sparingly, but I don't think it's, it's something they'll particularly focus on. Georgie, do you want to come in on sequencing point yeah, as well? Um, very quickly on sequencing. I think, Raoul, you're absolutely right. There's sort of, it's less clear for this phase. Um, I mean, presumably mandate negotiations votes and then implementation. Um, we do have uh, nonetheless some kind of fixed points. Um, we know that the political declaration talks about um, a decision that needs to be made on equivalence around June time, particularly for financial services, um, and a big uh, decision on fish in July, um, and of course whether or not to extend that deadline in June. So that we do have some fixed points in that process um, that could mould uh, talks and um, you know, guide talks um, over the next couple of months. 
Um, on your point about sort of the UK and Italy um, coming together, I think you know that was a joint decision, and I'm I'm going to sit on the sort of idealist, um, and I'm I'm more kind of optimistic on this. I think um, the UK has been a key driver of EU climate policy, and in fact, that's one of the areas where the EU is really going to regret the loss of the UK voice around the table. Um, it's been brilliant on thought leadership, um, but also on tangible policy and some solutions to how they can ta tackle climate change. Um, you know, if, if negotiations turn sour, will that massively impact? Well, it might, it might strain relations a little bit, but I think actually this was, they made that decision jointly to, to, to co-host it because they wanted to kind of be thinking about that future relationship, and this is a first tester of that. Um, but I think it's not just COP. Um, France and the UK also have their, uh, their two, you know, every two years they hold a summit um, where they look at their bilateral relations in the area of defence and security. Two years ago, uh, Theresa May welcomed President Macron here with all the fanfare. Um, next year it's going to be in France and that's going to be in the autumn. So it might be just months before the UK leaves either with a very basic deal, uh, so exits that transition period, sorry, with a very basic deal or a, you know, comprehensive deal or no deal at all. Um, and I think that's really one of the ones that will be quite crucial. Thank you. Joe, Maddie, I wonder if I could bring you on on the, uh, the Whitehall point. You both been doing a lot of thinking about Whitehall and Brexit and have a report coming out next year. What are some of the radical changes that we've heard uh, being muted over the last yeah. couple of days likely to mean? So I think if you, if you separate radical changes and you put kind of Brexit and um, rearranging departments over there, I mean, it's not really clear from the Conservative manifesto what their radical agenda is and whether there really is one. It wasn't a particularly ambitious agenda in lots of areas. And if it's kind of you know, passing legislation on the NHS, well, if you've got a majority of 80 in Parliament uh, and it doesn't really change anything substantively, then it's not a particularly radical uh, move and won't put big demands on Whitehall. And in part, I think that reflects just how big the demand in Whitehall will be on Brexit. I mean, it will be, you can get, there will get rid of the Brexit department at the end of January, which I think is a sensible move for just how you coordinate the next phase. But that doesn't mean Brexit's done by any stretch of the imagination. Brexit will be the job of pretty much every department. You know, some departments have almost, I mean, uh, if you look at DEFRA, for example, I think they lost one in three members of staff between 2010 and 2016, and by 2018 that had been completely reversed because of just the scale of expansion required to serve the Brexit beast. Um, and so that, you know, growing um, staff levels in more junior levels doesn't necessarily fix the problem of just senior capacity decision making, the people who have got expertise in this area and the area in which ministers are focusing. You know, we've already heard from our conversations that one of the challenges with Brexit is how do you um, keep the rest of the department that's not working on Brexit going and motivated because often they're getting much less energy and attention from seniors and they're being told to do the same thing but with fewer people because they need to borrow fewer pe some of those people to go and work on no deal preparation. So I think capacity will be a challenge. When you layer on the kind of moving departments around, I think individually there might be cases for some of them. We've looked before about the case for kind of changing the way immigration is set up within Whitehall. But again, if you take that example, if we are looking at immigration and borders, and if borders also means borders for goods, if you are plonking two of the biggest delivery challenges in Whitehall into a single new department next year, and they're both expected to deliver by December 2020, but meanwhile they have to work out things like what's their corporate governance like, who reports to who, what are the boards, how do they work with the rest of Whitehall, which meetings do they turn up to? That's just additional work and hassle <laughs> when they really don't need it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Joe set out sort of practical constraints really well. I mean, one of the things that I think is quite interesting is when does Brexit stop being Brexit and just become business as usual? And actually, government business is just being conducted. Like, you know, Brexit is the context within which all of this, these decisions are being made. And I mean, again, with sort of something like agriculture and fisheries, they're obviously, DEFRA has been massively impacted by Brexit. There's a lot of pressure. They've got to set up new, new uh, domestic regimes in those areas, including, you know, they've committed to bring forward an environment bill, set up a whole new environment body, the um, Office for Environmental Protection. 
you know, that, that obviously has been a sort of big Brexit impact, but in the next few years, it is just going to become business as usual. And Brexit would just be the sort of context as to why those decisions have been made. And I think there's going to be quite an interesting question about when we stop talking about civil servants working on Brexit and when it's just civil servants working on sort of government policy. And so I think, I think that I don't think is going to happen next year at all. But I do think there's quite an interesting question about when, when that sort of shift, particularly the sort of mentality shift, happens um, in the next few years anyway. Okay, another round of questions. Thank you very much. Gary Gibbon from Channel 4 News. Um, it sounds as though we're going, to, we're going to end up preparing for deal, no deal, and half deal. And I just wondered, in the context of what Raoul was saying a second ago, maybe, um, just how much will the tsunami of investment that Boris Johnson talked about um, feel it has enough clarity from that moment at the end of January? how much will it still be the business sitting out there waiting for much more clarity? And one other thing, you touched on the EU budget, and I just wondered, if you were casting your eye around for any areas where there might be deal softeners, where we could feed in money um, to help the EU out in order to get something else that we want in these negotiations, where might they be? Thank you. <coughs> Hi, my name is Catherine Carvets, Deutsche Zeitung Munich. Um, we haven't talked about Northern Ireland yet. I was wondering how long will it take to set up the whatever system it is that Johnson says will never happen, or that the Northern Irish say will happen, and might there even be a backlash against the system or whatever it may look like? Thank you. Um. Uh, John Pete from The Economist. Um, it's a little bit on the deal, no deal, half deal point. I, I wonder how significant the 1st of July really is. I mean, with Article 50, you could extend it whenever you felt like it or even revoke it if you wanted. But what people in Brussels say is if you don't decide to do this by the 1st of July, you just cannot do it legally. After that, you have to be have to trade on WTO terms from the 1st of January if you haven't got a free trade agreement in place. Does that mean you can't do some dirty deal in December? Thanks. Okay, so we've got tsunami of investment in the budget, Northern Ireland, and how significant is 1st of July? Yeah, um, they're really good questions. On, on the EU budget, I think negotiations have been ongoing for almost two years now. And uh, when I was in Brussels a, a week, two weeks ago, um, I asked that question and they said, you know, e member states are operating on the assumption that actually the UK will have left and therefore they're not relying on the UK to fill any holes. So, in fact, one of their big concerns is if this extension, uh, if the transition is extended, then what? How do we, you know, how do we accommodate the UK? What does it mean? How does it impact? Because they want to wrap up, and particularly von der Leyen wants to wrap up these talks ASAP. So actually, I think it's almost like they're not there yet. They're not thinking about that because they are so um, amongst themselves kind of fighting over how this budget should be spent. They're not sort of adding an extra layer of complexity on, on what holes the, the UK could fill. But perhaps going forward, that might be a, an extra consideration, but it's not at the moment. Um, on the deadline, 1st of July, etc., I think part of it, again, has to do with the MFF, where they say, you know, they want to wrap up talks um, sooner rather than later, but realistically it will be over the summer. Um, and again, they don't want to be sort of weeks before this new MFF comes into force, this new EU budget, sorry, um, and then have to kind of, you know, scratch their heads and try and find ways and, and how, will the, what's the UK's contribution, where does it go? I mean, I think part of it is actually logistically, and that's been a consideration for the EU throughout Brexit, actually, is how do we make sure that Brexit negotiation doesn't interfere with everything else that's going on in the EU? Um, so I think, um, can a dirty deal be reached? Possibly. Again, you have to think about ratification, which is different this time round. Um, and the European Parliament, quote unquote, this is what someone's told me in Brussels, won't be bullied, um, i.e. won't have sort of the week they want time to look at it. Um, but again, I think Michel Barnier has shown how sort of skilled he is, how, you know, Feedback's really important. He speaks to not only member states, but also national parliaments, business groups, the European Parliament, etc. So a lot of will depend on how the EU conducts this negotiation. But I think it's, it would be wrong to assume that sort of a gentleman's agreement can be reached, uh, you know, two weeks before uh, the end of the year. 
Uh, I'll try and address them all briefly. I think on investment, I think we'll see, we will see an unlocking in the first six months of next year, and then we might be back in the same position of things being held until we know exactly what's happening. So it, it probably won't be as large as it was as this time around, because there is a bit more clarity we have left, and you know, there are areas you know you're going to face new you know, requirements. But um, yeah, I think there will be some uncertainty, so we could see, could see a similar effect um, from the middle of next year. Um, on the budget, I mean, I think agree with what Georgie says. I think that though there is, a, there is potentially scope for the UK to feed into that, particularly when it's thinking about science, research, cooperation. You know, and the time to get into those discussions is before the budget is fully locked down and before the spending levels are locked down. Because if the UK then comes afterwards with, an, with additional money, well, the framework's already set and it's of less value for the member states. Whereas if it comes in during a difficult negotiation and helps maybe um, smooth the way with that negotiation as well as finding a new relationship, um, I think there is potential there. So that's one area that it should consider exploring. Uh, on Northern Ireland, look, I think this is um, a shared problem for, for both sides because it is going to be a real challenge to get the systems up and running. You know, the infrastructure, the administrative processes at the GBNI border are, you know, a huge shift from what's there now and what's ever been there. Um, so you're going to have problems, you know, negotiating in detail, implementing it on the ground and getting buy-in from the communities. Um, so I think both sides actually have to think seriously at the outset about what they're actually achieving to do. You know, the, the protocol leaves a lot of scope to actually build on um, what's in the text. You know, it leaves a lot of things open. So the type of agreement you're doing, you know, for example, if they decided to add in a veterinary agreement that reduced the default from 100% documentary checks and 50% physical checks to 10% and 1% as in New Zealand, uh, in the New Zealand agreement, that is a huge difference in terms of the level of infrastructure and change you need on the ground between GB and Northern Ireland. So thinking critically at the outset of what kind of deal they're actually looking for, and I think if they don't do that and, you know, it's just, well, we're going to apply the letter of the law and go for the, for the, the, the whole hog, um, there is a real risk that not everything is in place by the end of next year, but also that the communities just don't buy into it. You know, there are a lot of unionist businesses who may just, you know, not engage with some of these processes. So I think that is a real problem and it is a problem for both sides. And I think there is, you know, the EU has to be careful about suggesting this is just the UK's problem. It is genuinely a shared problem because it is an issue for Northern Ireland as well and the integrity of their market. Uh, and then finally, on John's point, I mean, look, I, I tend to take the view that actually that July is not that hard a deadline. Uh, the, I know the EU has already had legal outriders and experts out in the media saying, oh, it definitely is. Um, but, you know, in the end, one thing that I think will cater, you know, sort of colour the EU's approach to this phase again is the blame game. They are very concerned about that kind of blame game. And I think if, you know, it comes to October, November next year and the UK decides it does want an extension, is the EU really going to say no and be seen to push it out? due to inflexibility. Now they may say, well, this is, this is the law of the agreement, but in the end it is an international agreement between the two sides, and I think surely there must be scope there to do something if both sides agree it. So, look, I, I take a bit uh, a less of a, of a stringent view on there, but, um, you know, I think it's clearly a debate that may end up being parked if, if um, you know, there is a clause in the WAB that says this is ending next year. Georgie, did you want to jump Just back in? very briefly, um, something that you said, Raoul. I think um, it's also worth remembering that um, the Prime Minister in, in over the summer said that British diplomats in Brussels and across the EU would only be attending those meetings that were, quote-unquote, seen of national interest. EU budget, that was not uh, uh, anything that was deemed of national interest. Actually, British diplomats haven't been attending, my understanding, those, those meetings about the EU budget for the last couple of months. Now, everything's in the news. You can actually find out how member states feel about the budget. Um, but it's, you know, they haven't been at the heart of those negotiations for a while. Yeah, just very quickly on Northern Ireland, uh, I'd echo everything Raoul said. Um, on timeframes, uh, the recognising we don't actually know what, or there's not yet agreement on what the detail of what is being implemented is. If you say that the outline looks relatively similar to the UK's proposal around uh, customs partnership that came through in the summer 2018, but just for Northern Ireland, um, John Thompson, Chief Executive of HMRC, said at Treasury Select Committee in 2018 that the technology required to deliver that could take five years. Um, it's not necessarily exactly the same system, but gives you an idea of some of the system's challenges uh, Raoul was alluding to. Okay, I think we've got time for two more questions, so who wants to ask anything else? 
Yep, one over here. And one over there. businesses see what's coming next year, that there will be some decisions, particularly, say, in manufacturing, some big closures announcements that might actually influence thinking in my talk, because this discussion has been very much about what the government's doing, mm -hmm. but businesses will be seeing all this and taking preemptive action. Thank you. Yeah, yeah Trevor Kalis, Babcock. At the moment, we still seem to be talking about various things that could mitigate the worst effects of Brexit. But at some stage, I guess the government will want something that they can say, here we are, we're doing this, we wouldn't have been able to do this had we still been a member of the EU. Uh, what's that likely to be, do you think? Okay, so business reactions, and what are the, what are the positive things the government's going to be able to, to claim? Joe, do you want to start? So on um, business, I think there is an interesting question of when we... Um, where in the next, over the next year business kind of applies pressure and starts to speak with a voice with a one demand. We only really saw that once in the first phase, which was around securing the transition, where business pushed very hard and lobbied very hard. Um, and I think there is an interesting question of, given they wanted to understandably not stick their head into the kind of Westminster bun fight over the last year or so, whether once we've left some of the kind of political pressure of being seen pro or against Brexit comes off and they feel they can speak out. And the obvious thing you would think they would be drawn to is this question of timing uh, and whether or not there's an extension to the transition or more time for businesses. So I think we could start to hear businesses speak about what they do want and what would um, kind of uh, manage some of their concerns. On um, opportunities from Brexit, I mean, immigration, of course, is one of the that's seen as a really big opportunity I kind of talk about it as one of the challenges just because of the delivery timeline, but as a policy ambition, that is seen as one of the positives. I think um, agriculture and fisheries, again, of course, the reality is with fisheries so much is kind of still up for grabs within the negotiations. Um, and on agriculture, the government has already said that it would look to phase these changes in over a longer period. <coughs> and actually our domestic agricultural policy is still subject to this whole heap of decisions about what our domestic policy is, what that means for rest of world trade, and what therefore we do with the EU as well. And there are quite a few of these areas, agriculture is quite a good example, where it's all kind of bundled up together. And at the moment, I think a lot of people are waiting for a decision on EU negotiations that will determine, or at least that was kind of the, the approach, I think, over the last few years, was to wait for decisions on EU before really understanding what the UK's domestic policy would then look like, but that might change. Maddie? Yeah, I think on, on the agriculture point, I think, I mean, Joe's right, there's obviously a big question about how uh, our trade for the rest of the world might impact that, but I do think that was one of the, the areas that, that particularly, I mean, it was Theresa May's government, but Michael Gove was the person in DEFRA who really did say, you know, this was an opportunity for the UK to have a green Brexit, for example. So, you know, bringing forward um, the sort of the proposal for the new domestic policy around uh, making payments of farmers is public, mon um, public money for public goods and actually trying to put um, sort of the environment at, at the centre of the agricultural policy and introducing their 25-year environment plan, which again is sort of trying to say that the UK can lead the way um, on, on the environment and, and potentially climate change as well. I mean, Georgie's already mentioned how and the UK is a leading voice in the EU. So I, I think that has that was sort of the approach of Theresa May's government. I think it's slightly, there's, you know, slightly got to wait and see with uh, Boris Johnson's new government, but I do think that could be an area where uh, they sort of try and put that at the centre of their programme to sort of sell the benefits of Brexit. Um, I think on the, on the sort of manufacturing businesses point, I think it is just quite an interesting question, and this is just a question um, that has been raised is about particularly where the new Conservative MPs have been elected, whether that might change how the government approaches some of this just because of the lobbying that those MPs might need to do for you know, their constituents, for their for businesses uh, operating in their areas. So that's, sort of, I think, maybe sort of something to watch out for to see whether that does change any of the dynamics. I, I mean, don't know at this stage, but it's something to think about. Georgie? 
Yeah, I mean, I suspect that on sort of uh, global Britain, I mean, that was a term that was coined under Boris Johnson when he was Foreign Secretary, and I, and I suspect that there will be movement on that. The UK will want to show where it can still exercise thought leadership, where it has capacity. Um, I suspect there will be some movement on defence, particularly when the new review comes out of government, um, but also sort of a more active role in NATO and in other international organisations. I think um, there, there really is ambition there, and I think with a new majority in Parliament and a new plan and possibly reshuffle um, of a couple of departments, um, this will pave the way for a more active UK on the international stage. I think on the sort of uh, opportunities post-Brexit, um, agree with much of what's been said. I think a couple of areas that haven't been mentioned, state aid is and changing the way that's done. You know, that's already something that the government has staked out, and I think that's certainly something where they could look to do things a bit differently and fits with the new sort of electoral base they have. Uh, I think also there's going to be, you know, in, it's a bit less clear-cut in terms of an opportunity, but in some new areas, AI. Uh, and tech, you know, there's going to be a way to regulate differently to how the EU might be doing it. So I think that's one of the areas they'll be looking at as well. And then on the business decisions, I mean, it's it's possible, but I think there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem here because by the time it gets to the point where we start seeing these decisions being made and the changes, I think will be quite far down the line. Uh, and I think you know, the uh, then the government will have already staked out its negotiating position. Uh, and I, in any case, I think that you know. If it, it's, it's unlikely to shift it to a softer Brexit because you know, it's, it, it, you know, the, the government is unlikely to stay in the single market, it's unlikely to stay in the customs union, and it's been very anti-ongoing uh, dynamic alignment with EU rules. So if you're ruling those things out, how much softer you can get is, is limited. So it's possible we might see these things, but I'm sceptical that they would, they would have a material effect at that point in changing the government's position. Thank you, Raul. Okay, it's um, 10 o'clock, so we're out of time. Um, but I'm sure you'll be able to ask the panel more questions um, in the lobby outside if you want to. Um, thank you very much for coming today and thank you to our excellent panel.